Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Our podcasts are made possible in part by a grant from the Thomas Job Fund. Hello, this is James, and welcome to the podcast. And this week, Mad in America's science news editor, Justin Carter, will be interviewing humanities professor and psychiatrist Bradley Lewis. But before we get to the discussion, I wanted to let you know that in December, we will be sharing a special episode of the podcast in which Mad in America founder Robert Whittaker will be answering your questions. Please send in questions by email to askmia at maddenamerica.com. That's A-S-K-M-I-A at maddenamerica.com, and we will pick a selection. Please send us questions by November 10th, and be sure to let us know if you're happy to be identified or if you'd prefer to remain anonymous. And now, on to the podcast. Bradley Lewis works at the intersections of medicine, psychiatry, philosophy, the psychological humanities, and disability studies, balancing roles as both a practicing psychiatrist and an academic. Lewis earned degrees in psychiatry, an MD, and a PhD in the humanities from George Washington University, and he currently holds an associate professorship at NYU's Gallatin School of Individualized Study. He also has affiliations with NYU's Department of Social and Cultural Analysis, the Department of Psychiatry, and the Disability Studies minor. Additionally, he serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Medical Humanities. His recent books are Narrative Psychiatry, How Stories Shape Clinical Practice, and Depression, Integrating Science, Culture, and Humanities. His writing offers unique insights into the ideological foundations of mental health and champions the role of narrative in therapy. His work also actively bridges the gap between academia and on-the-ground initiatives. A founding member of the Institute for the Development of Humane Arts, or IDA, Lewis champions a paradigm shift in mental health by facilitating collaboration between advocates, service users, and clinicians. His profound appreciation for the humanities guides his exploration of mental health, often through the lens of art and literature. By analyzing the lives of figures like Vincent van Gogh or dissecting Chekhov's narratives, Lewis encourages us to rethink and expand our understanding of psychological experiences. Join us today as we explore the philosophical foundations, practical implications, and transformative potential of his work. Dr. Bradley Lewis, welcome to the Madden America podcast. Thank you, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for setting this up. Welcome. I'll dive right in. Um, so to start, I want to know a little bit about your background. You live at a pretty unique intersection with medicine and psychiatry on the one hand, and the humanities, philosophy, and disability studies on the other. So how did you find yourself walking these two roads simultaneously? Well, uh, I guess it goes back to, I originally trained in medicine and psychiatry, and um, I did my residency in psychiatry in the 1980s, and it was a time when psychiatry was sort of toggling back and forth between the biomedical model and the psychoanalytic model. Um, our department, I was at George Washington University, our department had the last standing psychoanalytic chair. And um, I was very impressed with how the two worlds of biopsychiatry and psychoanalysis created whole different ways of understanding. Um, one, you um, sort of look for causal uh, mechanical sort of uh, understandings and do um, sort of biological interventions. The other is much more humans 
meaning oriented and it's through talking. Um, and I just thought that question was so fascinating and, and nobody was really talking about it in psychiatry. Um, so I went across the campus and started taking classes uh, in philosophy and literature and the arts and anthropology to try to get some sense of what does it mean that there's these two very different ways of meaning making in psychiatry and how can we add um, uh, our understanding of this diversity of possibility by going to um, the arts and humanities. And so I ended up getting a PhD in interdisciplinary um, arts and humanities because I I had felt like a problem with psychiatry had been it was sort of over-disciplined. Even psychoanalysis um, even was, was, was pretty sort of narrow in the sense that the people tended to reference other psychoanalysts. It tended to be um, a world where there were sort of clear, you know, sort of founding figures. Most of the people that would be read in psychoanalytic classes were other psychoanalysts. I wanted to, I wanted to get out of those boxes. Um, and so that's when I, I sort of went for this interdisciplinary PhD. And I've been cross-talking them ever since. I, 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 there's, it turns out that uh, uh, there are a few interdisciplinary um, academic programs uh, New York University has one. It's called the Gallatin School of Individualized Study. And uh, it's a place for other people who feel like um, we need to connect the dots across disciplines. The uh, depth of discipline has its place, but we have a lot of specialists and not enough people that can connect the dots and, and, and do breadth right now. And so Gallatin is a place where they honor that. Um, so I, I work there as a faculty, and then uh, a, day a, week, a day a week I practice psychiatry. It seems like one of the benefits of your interdisciplinary training that's evident in your work is being able to see psychiatry from the perspective of other disciplines, um, which then situates, situates these different ways of thinking in psychiatry within larger sort of ideological and political movements. And I'm thinking here of, your, of some of your work on post-psychiatry. Um, so can you expand on how you've come to think about what post-psychiatry is and then how does this like interdisciplinary philosophical approach allow us to see psychiatry and the mental health fields uh, differently from, from a different point of view? Yeah, when I was doing my PhD in interdisciplinary arts and humanities, um, post-structural theory, post-modern philosophy, um, were all sort of the lingua franca, and um, people were looking uh, at sort of interdisciplinary thinkers like Foucault, Derrida, Lyotard, Rigueray, uh, Kristeva, as as um, people who had things to say across that were relevant across a lot of disciplines, um, and. Um, my feeling was what they had to say was really relevant for psychiatry too. And um, it meant that <clears throat> instead of seeing psychiatry as a, as a modernist discourse that's about trying to get closer and closer to an objective truth, um, we see psychiatry um, from the lens of more postmodern theory as kind of come up with useful meanings for navigating the world. Um, and we uh, pay a lot of attention not only to what meanings get made, but who gets to participate. What are the what are the power dynamics of who gets to participate in meaning making? Uh, either at the point of service when when someone is saying, "Would you would you like 
electroshock therapy or would you like psychoanalysis, for example? Would you like family therapy? Um, But even back from that, who gets to participate in making the knowledge base of psychiatry? Um, And um, it felt like that um, the postmodern theory would really help psychiatry uh, open up um, from um, what it can see from one lens to what it can see from multiple lens. And so post-psychiatry then is, is an attempt to set the, um, the groundwork for that kind of more interdisciplinary approach. And so from um, this perspective, if psychiatry isn't in search of truth about the cause of mental illness, but is in the sort of practice of making meaning about mental distress um, and also kind of organizing who gets to participate in that meaning making. Uh, so post-psychiatry opens up psychiatry to those kinds of questions and what kind of answers does it provide once you look through the lens of those questions or what do we see about psychiatry or the mental health fields once we ask um, what kind of meanings it's producing uh, in the service of who well i mean i think the first thing you see is um the tremendous diversity of possibility um and the way in which a modernist logic that one is right and all the rest are wrong that one one is is the truth and the rest are myths um, doesn't hold up very well. And so once you begin to realize that um, you can't sort of call trumps with any one way, my way is superior to all these other ways, uh, then you have to look at um, how do you go about deciding? And, and right now that's that, that, uh, that tends to be done uh, through who happens to be uh, empowered to make those decisions. Um, so it's, it, it really deconstructs the necessity of organizing psychiatry the way that it does and lobbies for getting way more voices involved. But I guess it doesn't then say exactly where psychiatry should go or what it should do or what it should look like. It, 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 it does, it, it delegitimizes the main um, stream as the only way it doesn't delegitimize it as a way. It's a way checkers is a way backgammon is a way Parcheesi is a way. Um, it doesn't say checkers is bad. It just says it's not somehow the superior game. Um, and um, let's open it up to people that want to play other games. Um, and then it's about who gets to get involved and uh, how do we play fair um, with that diversity? One of the things I've struggled with in my own work is holding this sort of critical ideological perspective, this sort of zoomed out point of view, the role the mental health fields play. Uh, and then also think about how that comes to bear on my individual interactions with clients, uh, And so I was intrigued in reading your work on narrative psychiatry that you found narrative theory to be a bridge for you between post-psychiatry, critical psychiatry, and then like your actual practice of psychotherapy. Um, So can you say more about that? How does narrative psychiatry inform your clinical practice and how might your practice look a little bit different from somebody um, who isn't using narrative theory and maybe isn't holding the same sort of uh, post-psychiatry lens? Yeah, I I found narrative theory to be really helpful because it takes these big sort of um, philosophical issues like language and power um, and brings them to ground, brings them to the ground of what are the different language options 
that are possible that we use to tell the story of ourselves. So uh, when we have a, um, a mental difference or mental suffering, um, if we want to tell the story of that, um, we're going to use the sort of tools of narrative. And, and, and those tools, um, key ones are metaphor, plot, character, point of view. Um, metaphor is really interesting because the many different models of mental difference um, are organized around sort of root metaphors. So it's like a broken brain. It's like a childhood trauma. It's like an unresolved grief. It's like a family dysfunction. You know, there's all these, it's, it's, it's um, and the, the, the more celebratory ones, um, it's like uh, an artist um, who is picking up, who's, who's sensitive and is picking up on something that others can't pick up on. Um, these different metaphors get become the way in which we organize the past, we understand the present, and give us directions towards the future. Um, if if you go to a mainstream, they won't be that conscious, so they'll they'll help you organize around a metaphor, give you some sense of um, you know what how to understand what happened, how to understand what's going on and what, what to do in the future. You know, now the most common one is a chemical imbalance type thing. Oh, that's because you had a chemical imbalance. You know, now, you know, you're going to need to take medication. You'll need to stay. Those kinds of things um, are a, a sort of default way of telling stories without being conscious of telling stories. Um, once you bring narrative theory, then you're creating a much more collaborative process um, where the person who really gets to decide is the person whose life is at stake. Um, and you're working with them around the options of how to understand, you know, what makes sense to them and what choices do they want to make. So it just gets you, it gets you into the nitty um, gritty particulars of an individual life compared to the larger post um, psychiatry, philosophy, power, you're into like, how do you, how, how does it make sense to organize your life, um, going forward? I'm curious, um, when you're working with a client who has adopted a metaphor, say like a broken, a broken brain metaphor, um, because that's a culturally powerful metaphor and it's widely available and it's promoted, um, by the institution of psychiatry itself or by the pharmaceutical companies or both. And if, if you feel that their uh, use of that metaphor is somehow contributing to their feeling of stuckness in um, not being able to move forward, uh, how do you, you know, raise the possibility of other metaphors or holding the metaphor more lightly when it's become part of somebody's kind of identity or how they understand themselves? How do you, how do you navigate that in practice? Well, it's a dialogue. It's a, it's a you know it's a conversation. I mean, I, I think the, the 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 fork that comes up the most um, is: Do you want to use a pathological metaphor, or do you want to use a more celebratory metaphor? Um, because the mainstream, whether it's biological, um, psychoanalytic, cognitive, behavioral. Um, many family, there's something pathological, there's something broken that needs to be fixed. Um, but in a more celebratory model, a more affirmative model, a more generative model, 
then the difference from the norm uh, is is um, more like a gift than a dysfunction. It's a, and, and that gift is usually organized around sensitivity or yearning. Um, our sensitive ones um, are often um, at odds with the norm. And that's why we often tell them, you know, go see your shrink, go take your medicine, stop being so sensitive. Um, but we don't tell our political seekers um, to be uh, not to be sensitive. We wouldn't tell Martin Luther King not to uh, be much more sensitive to injustice than the average person. Uh, we wouldn't tell Gandhi not to be sensitive to injustice compared to the average person. We wouldn't tell our spiritual uh, seekers um, not to be so sensitive to the possibility that life could be much richer, much deeper, um, much more connected. Um, and we wouldn't tell our artists in a lot of ways not to be so sensitive. We need we need our artists to pick up on things. So, so the first question is, you know, how much are we pathologizing this, and how much is this a sensitivity that brings with it certain gifts, certain um, uh, depths of knowing and seeing and feeling that the norm can't see that that isn't simply bad. Um, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily easy. It's not so easy to be sensitive or to be yearning or to um, feel that the world could be much richer than it is, um, much more fair. Um, but that it 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 starts to shift. Um, is this simply a bad thing, um, or am I am I on to something? <laughs> so, in, in, from that perspective, one of the sort of political implications of the biomedical metaphor in psychiatry is that it uh, sort of marginalizes dissent, political dissent in some way, or recasts political dissent um, as pathology. I'm also thinking about some of your work on, on madness studies that has political implications in that it challenges psychiatry itself to be more open uh, to political critiques uh, from service users, peer specialists, you know, social activists, journalists, uh, like us here at Madden America. So I'm wondering about uh, madness studies as a field, your work there, and uh, what possibilities it opens up for sort of more democratic practices in psychiatry. Yeah, I mean, the, um, mainstream psychiatry um, has been very contentious, as Madden America beautifully <laughs> captures, you know, and, and, and many people uh, have been hurt by mainstream psychiatry. And um, they've become organized against it as, as activists in different ways, trying to either transform it or to um, reduce its effect on people. Um, if you go to the American Psychiatric Association, um, you'll see a whole protest movement really sort of going on outside it a lot of times. Um, and um, if we see that protest only through a pathological model, um, then we lose um, the depth of insight that people have about how psychiatry could open up, could shift, could be able to tap into aspects of what's happening with people that, that it can't see. And uh, one way that that plays out is um, increasingly understood um, through the logic of other um, difference issues, racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, 
Sainism, right? And, 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 and as of yet, Sainism is not as well known as the others, but it's a similar kind of insidious denigration of the other and subordination of the other um, based on a kind of prejudice. Um, and um, so MAD studies is really about, just like gender studies, just like disability studies, it's about making the world better for people who have been marked up through differences. Um, and how can we not change their bodies, but how can we change society so that it's much more accommodating and receptive and able to take advantage of, of the, the gifts of, of, of our different ones? Um, and that becomes also a coalition in many ways, not only between the activists who have uh, been involved in trying to reform psychiatry uh, as a kind of social movement, um, but also academics who've been, who can see through intersectionality, we've already been thinking in the academy about race, sex, gender, increasingly ability. It's not hard for academics to begin to start to see how sanism fits with that intersectional sort of form of subordination. Um, it's just a matter of organizing the academy so that it can um, bring to bear its sort of already understanding of this difference issue that, that, that as of yet hasn't gotten as much temp attention as the other difference issues. Um, but with the growth in disability studies and, and disability studies increasingly taking on questions of mental and cognitive difference, um, MAD studies sort of, it's just sort of launching itself in, in, in lots of different ways. You mentioned the uh, the kind of protest outside of the American Psychiatric Association. And I'm wondering, that's a good example of sort of uh, that helps us think about what a democratic psychiatry might look like uh, rather than sort of a just a protest outside and the psychiatrist inside. Is there a way for there to be a seat at the table for an influence to be democratic, democratically influenced by those with dissenting points of view about how psychiatry should conduct its business? And I guess I, I wonder about your what your vision is for what maybe an American Psychiatric Association meeting might look like. Uh, if there were a more democratic practice in psychiatry? Well, as of now, psychiatry has not been terribly open to that. Um, and um, so I guess there's more than one. So there, there could be organized democracy where we really start to invite different stakeholders. I mean, the people who are impacted by the knowledge base of psychiatry is much bigger than psychiatrists, right? And so who are the stakeholders of this knowledge? Um, basic disability studies mantra, nothing about us without us. So you're making knowledge that's affecting our lives uh, as stakeholders, whether it's service users or family members or school teachers um, or community members. Um, the, the stakeholders should have some say in how that knowledge plays out. Psychiatry um, has not been terribly... Um, I mean, they don't even have sort of a, a philosophical base that that would even make sense. Like, like good knowledge is not democratic knowledge. Good knowledge is knowledge that's tested through empirical method. It, it, they don't even really have a framework for it. So I think it's about democracy through other means. It's by organizing. It's by building other programs. It's by setting up um, Mad in America. It's a, just because... People don't invite you to contribute to a knowledge base. It doesn't mean you can't contribute to a knowledge base. Uh, one of the reasons why the arts 
um, are also really relevant because it's this huge world where all this sort of work is going on around what it means to be human, what it means to struggle, what it means to have human differences, and it's rich upon rich. Um, so lots, lots of different ways to democratize the knowledge base, even if it hasn't been a structure set up at this point to invite those kind of stakeholders into the process. But that would be a vision. Uh, that's, a, that's also an excellent segue into, I wanted to ask you about the Institute for the Development of Humane Arts, uh, another alternative outside of the medical model that's talking about mental health, mental distress, uh, by trying to bring a new discourse to these things uh, through collaboration, uh, democratic collaboration between advocates, service users, and clinicians. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit of the story about, uh, as a co-founder, um, how this organization, how did this organization get started and, and, you know, kind of what's the vision there? Well, yeah, Ida um, the, is a, um, yeah, great example of um, sort of a shift, I guess you could say, in um, the activist community from critique to reimagining in, in a lot of different ways. So critique has its place. Um, critique um, is still a big part of what's going on in, in different protests. Um, but over time, many of the critical folks uh, begin to start um, thinking for themselves about what kind of possibilities, what's being left out, what kind of services might they want, um, how can the things that people were doing in mutual aid be relevant more, more broadly. Um, even um, SAMHSA started recognizing that um, to really be helpful, many um, hospitals and clinics need to start bringing in people with lived experience, that um, even within the mainstream, people are recognizing that um, we're going to alienate people if we don't have people there that, that have been there, that can, that can talk from, from their own sort of first person. And so Ida is about... Yeah, how can we organize and um, sort of uh, put together curriculums uh, of things that have been left out, of things that uh, stakeholders want that aren't being talked about, uh, things that have been uh, how mutual aid um, can um, be not only just someone with lived experience, but someone who's informed. I mean, that, 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 that's the other piece of Ida, I think, is that um, it's about um, trying to, as we've led peer workers in, um, if we just train them in the mainstream, then they're not going to be different than the mainstream. Um, and so it's sort of what kind of education base would be helpful, not only for the mainstream, but for peer workers. Um, so yeah, it was started by, um, activists, people that, uh, uh, Jasmine Russell, someone who, um, had taken some classes uh, at NYU who had got her own experience in community mental health and through her own life, uh, started working with Peter Stasny, who has been a sort of reform-minded psychiatrist for a long time. Icarus project was starting to shift um, to um, be more interested in helping build knowledge bases for folks, and, and many people there were involved in it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's not just protest anymore. It's, it's about, here's some new ideas, here's some new approaches, here's how we can do this more democratically, here's how it can, we can make sense of mutual aid. 
all these things are trying to stay afloat, you know, so they've got some things are fees, some things are free, some things are grants, all kinds of different ways that they're, they're supporting it. But they're trying to get, they're not trying to make exclusive knowledge and they're not trying to get rich, they're trying to get the knowledge out there. So I want to pick up again on the uh, the role of the arts and the humanities that you were talking about, and it's there in the Institute for the Development of the Humane Arts. Uh, what role the arts and the humanities can play in transforming the mental health field. Um, you've recently written about um, the mental health humanities or the psychological humanities as a potential way forward. Um, I've also recently came across, uh, you present a case on Vincent van Gogh uh, as an example of how studying uh, art and history can challenge how we think about mental difference and disability. I was wondering if you could share a little bit uh, of that case with us and what you, what you learned and what van Gogh has to offer us in thinking about mental health. Well, I guess the arts, I mean... Um in general, sort of speaking broad, is it kind of is, in a way, this interdisciplinary sort of open field that I'm talking about. Um, it's a place where people talk about the human condition. And, and I mean, it, <clears throat> it, 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 it compares, actually, to talking to people, <laughs> which was a, a, a part of my odyssey that, that that, that I left out is that even even though the program where I was trained had psychoanalysts and biopsychiatrists, when I would talk to people, um, those domains didn't come close to talking about the complexity of what mattered to them in their lives and what was relevant for their flourishing. You know, it had to do not only with their childhood or with their body, but also, you know, with race and class and gender and I can't get a job and school doesn't seem to care about the arts. And, you know, like I, I'm, I'm living in a neighborhood and I'm seeing it degraded and, you know, the, the, the inequality, you know, the, 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 the way in which um, when we talk about our troubles, we're not hemmed into a particular discipline. Um, and when you go to the arts, um, you hear stories about life that also are not, are not coming from a particular discipline. They're, they're, you can mix together biology with spirituality, with childhood influences, with politics, you know, with the environment. All this stuff is all able to make sense. And so the arts are this rich domain where we are processing human life outside of the silos of the academy. Um, and so uh, it isn't exactly like that. It hasn't been happening. It has been happening. It's just been happening over there um, in the arts. Um, so two things. One is we can learn from the arts. Um, and two, we can begin to start propagating the arts as a way of... Um, a kind of care for our communities um, and for ourselves. Um, I mean, one place to learn from the arts, the Van Gogh um, story is a good one um, because um, whatever you want to say about Van Gogh, he was extremely sensitive. Um, and uh, it, if you go to the library and you look up books on Van Gogh, about half of them will pathologize him and there's a whole array of possible pathologies that he might have had and the other half will celebrate him that um 
Van Gogh needs to be treated, you know, or, and, and so we need to teach him or we need to learn from Van Gogh. Van Gogh um, was um, someone who could be a beacon uh, for our lives. Um, so he's not so much broken as he is uh, someone who could be a healer. Um, and, and the kinds of things that Van Gogh was sensitive about um, are many of the things that we've talked about. Um, he, um, early in his life, he was interested in religion. His father uh, had a religious um, vocation. Um, he um, tr- felt a deep um, sympathy for the poor and the suffering, and he wanted to bring uh, a higher consciousness to them. He he didn't he he shifted out of that over time, and and it became a kind of spiritual, uh, a natural supernatural more than a theological one. But if you go to his art, you can feel some spiritual connection in a way that's very. Um, that you can't describe. It's ineffable, but you can feel it. I, I was at a Van Gogh retrospective a few years ago at Mass Smoka, and the place was just electric with like, oh God, you see that? You see those swirls? I know, I know, you know, like this, this, this. So that, so that um, the other thing that Van Gogh uh, was deeply sensitive to was um, inequality and oppression. Um, and many of his, um, Paintings involve the poor or the downtrodden or the denigrated. And Van Gogh is part of this sort of um, post-French Revolution where many artists are realizing if we want to have a world where we treat um, the least of us with dignity, um, that's going to have to come through the arts as much as it's going to come through politics. We have to have a transformation of the way we see the least of us if we're going to treat them with dignity. And Van Gogh helps us see, you know, um, the dignity of the human regardless of where they are on some sort of social, social status. Um, and then, and then, of course, the other thing that he was sensitive to is the possibility that art can be transformative right along these lines, that art can reach people, can touch people, that you can use art to convey a depth of understanding. And so, and so in, in all of these ways, his sensitivity is a gift, but it's, on the other hand, um, his, um, it, 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 there was a lot of suffering. There was a lot of struggling. Um, and so how do you make the meaning of Van Gogh? Do you pathologize him? Do you celebrate him? Which pathology do you use? Um, you can see that, that his life is open to so much diversity of possibility. Um, and, and, of course, we don't know what, what would Van Gogh, how would Van Gogh want to make meaning out of his life? How would Van Gogh, you know, like if we or say the Van Gogh inside all of us, you know, like how would we want that meaning made? And different people are going to have different answers. So it's not, it's not like, and then here's the truth of Van Gogh, you know, it's just celebration or it's just pathology. It's like, there's a lot of different possibilities and, and, and which one you go for will affect the life that you live. So that it's not just abstract choices. It's, it's, it's choices about who you want to be, how you want to live. Yeah. It seems like the, uh, the depth and complexity of his work sort of confounds uh, our tendency to impose a, mo- a ready-made model 
uh, to understand who he was as a person. If we look both at his biography, uh, which we can kind of put a lens on, uh, different lenses on, but then we look at, the, at his work, uh, which invites us to see the world differently or potentially see the world as he's seeing it for a moment. Um, and then at, at that moment, if we try to apply maybe like simply a diagnostic label or a sort of shallow metaphor to make sense of all of that, we, we just really find that it isn't up to the task and it really kind of challenges us to push beyond some of our at hand, ready at hand models that we, that we bring to interpreting the world. Yes. And I think that's right. And I think because Van Gogh has his own, um, voice, you know, I mean, Foucault, I, I, you know, the history of psychiatry is the history of the monologue of reason, right? You know, like Foucault, um, you know, is, is speaking house that once the experts start deciding, you don't get to hear, but you get to hear from Van Gogh through his art, right? Like, wait a minute, you can't, you, it's, you don't just hear the experts saying, you get that, wait a minute, there's a conversation here. There's, there's and, and, you, and you, you, his, his work is strong enough that, that you, you cannot not take it seriously. In addition to, to Van Gogh, um, I've appreciated and, and seen some of your work on depression and melancholia that um, invokes Chekhov's short stories um, and calls for sort of a deeper appreciation of the complexities of, of, of those states of being. Um, I'm wondering, do you have, is there a particular story that comes to mind or one that serves as a good example for, for why Chekhov for thinking about depression? Well, or thinking about medicine and psychiatry, I, I think Chekhov becomes a really useful uh, model because in Chekhov you have just deep interdisciplinarity that, that on the one hand you have a, a medical physician um, who was trained and practiced uh, and deeply committed to his medical world. On the other hand, um, you have um, a short story writer, a playwright who is revered you know, as is as, as influential uh, almost, at, you know, after Shakespeare, practically, I mean, and just in terms of theater arts and, and short stories, it's just been huge. And um, so you have someone who, on the one hand, can see the world through the language of medicine, and on the other hand, can see the world through the language of art. And um, I think that um, that second point of view um highlights point of view, right? Because, because it, as an artist, you know there's not a point of view without a point of view, right? You can't have a, a viewpoint from nowhere. In fact, there's lots of doctors in Chekhov's work and, and, and they've all got a different point of view. You know, they're, they're, they're not a single voice. Um, so that I, I think with Chekhov, you have someone who um, both cares about medicine, but also realize that medicine is one point of view among others, and that when a doctor is telling a story, it's not—it can't be—it's not some sort of um, mirror of the real. Um, and and then on top of that, I think uh, you have someone who um, suffered, someone who went through his own sadness, his own despair. Uh, he died young. He had tuberculosis. Um, he had um, a sense of the spiritual that's uncommon uh, for a secular world. Uh, he had a sensitivity to injustice. Um, and um, so what comes through in his stories is this way that humans are doing the best they can in, uh, in overwhelming for forces in, in a lot of different ways. 
Um, I mean, the story that I guess we just did a paper, uh, Yusuf Valentin and I, where we looked at uh, Chekhov's story, A Nervous Breakdown. And in that one, it's about a young lawyer who um, is just much more sensitive to oppression than he's a living law student, actually, who's much more sensitive to oppression than um, the other students around. There's a medical student and an art student, and they're all going out for a night at the brothel. Um, and he is just much more um, aware of the oppression of the sex worker trade than anybody else. Um, and he has a breakdown as a result of it. Um, but is that bad? You know, is that, is, you know, like we, things like we, we've been talking about, that, that that sensitivity is a good thing, but it's also an overwhelming thing. And yeah, he goes to a clinician and the clinician just comes at it solely through science um, and misses sort of the depth of his despair and gives him sort of a superficial treatment, um, but um, loses the complexity of what he's going through. So it's a, it's a very relevant for today's situation. And in particular, your, um, your recent book, Looking at Depression, uh, and melancholia through the lens of the humanities as well. Uh, what have you, how does a picture of depression uh, change from maybe the clinical picture when you start to read people like Chekhov uh, for insights on, on melancholia, when you start to, to look at the work of Van Gogh for insights on, on, on suffering? I wonder how, how do you articulate what, what, uh, what is depression? I hesitate to even use that word, I guess. Yeah. But you know, what, what is a different sort of understanding of, of that experience? Well, yeah, ultimately it's a word, right? What is depression? It's a word. <laughs> um, well, I, history is another way that you can defamiliarize our sort of present sort of worldview. And when you look to the historical record, you just see a lot of different diversity of possibilities of how to make meaning around this word that we call melancholia or depression. And it, it isn't even exactly the same thing um, that's being called different things. It's like each way that you call it changes a little bit about what it is. And um, you begin to, and, and even like, even the, if you try to get to the root of it, like this, this idea of black bile, melancholia comes from this idea of black bile and, you know, we used to have a humoral system. The bile makes the least sense to our minds today. You know, it's thought to be sluggish and heavy and, you know, sort of uh, torpid. And, and, and so, like, did we have sluggish and heavy and torpid people and then said, oh, there must be a lot of black bile? Or do we have these humors and then start categorizing people? To, oh, well, that, that sort of matches the, what we think black bile is. So we, it, it, it seems like it's, it's as much the latter as it is the former that, 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 that we start organizing people, you know, according to these different care. I mean, we, we all have different belly buttons and different ears. You know, we don't use it to divide our bathrooms. There's all kinds of different ways we can divide ourselves. Um, and the ones that we get called you know, melancholia seems like gets started and then goes forward and gets shifts and moves over time. Um, so I, th I think history, cultural diversity, subcultural diversity, the arts, 
Um, there's all kinds of different ways to sort of defamiliarize some sort of monolithic uh, meaning. And then you're off to how can we do justice to that, both as um, a mental health system and as individuals trying to navigate um, our lives. I'm curious about um, how you see the future of psychiatry and the mental health field sh shifting. There seem to be uh, more uh, a diversity of narratives um, that have become available uh, through social media and through organizing um, that offer different frameworks, whether it's neurodiversity or psychoanalytic terms or biomedical terms, um, that people are organizing um, their self-understandings and communities around. Um, do those pose a challenge to psychiatry? Is there a way for there to be a democratic approach to incorporating those voices? I guess, how optimistic are you that the field is going to be um, uh, kind of wrought open uh, to some of these perspectives? I, I'm, I'm quite optimistic, actually. I, I mean, I think the, um, the, pow the, the dominance of the biomedical model, um, you know, I think has shifted quite a bit. And I think Mad America has been helpful. I think academics have been helpful. I think protest movements have been helpful. I think um, just the sort of lived experience of many people, that it's incomplete. Um, the profits that were uh, available for um, promoting this uh, have shifted as we have fewer and fewer things that are on patent uh, to, to sell. Um, I think we're entering a period where things are starting to open up again um, and there's more interest in psychotherapy, um, than there used to be. And I think the more people are getting involved, I think through um, disability studies, now MAD studies, more and more people are getting access to these diversity of possibilities. Um, I like the idea of mental health humanities. Psychology is doing a kind of similar kind of thing, psycho psychological humanities. One of the interdisciplinary spaces that I've inhabited over my career is medical humanities, health humanities. How can um, <clears throat> medicine and healthcare more broadly tap into the value for clinical empathy and clinical understanding and narrative competency through learning from the arts and humanities? And, and it, it, What's nice is it, it doesn't require a revolution. You don't have to just overthrow the biomedical model, not to do it in medicine. I don't know whether you'd want to or not. You just add to it um, some additional perspectives. You have some additional um, certificates. You have some additional classes. You have some additional programs. Uh, you just begin to sprinkle in um, awareness into the healthcare community of the value of the arts arts and humanity. also for healthcare workers themselves so much burnout and so much uh, sadness and um, despair in the healthcare communities themselves how can the arts and humanities be part of what makes their life more meaningful um, so so I, I, I like this idea of bringing into the world of mental health um, 
having psychology departments, having social work departments, having psychiatry departments, have some of what they do connect with the arts and humanities, have some of their faculty connect with the arts and humanities, have some of their classes devoted to the arts and humanities in order to create a world that isn't so, um, you know, monological. Well, thank you. Um, I want to also ask if there are any sort of final uh, thoughts or anything you want to bring our, our readers or listeners' attentions to before we uh, before we end today. Uh, no, I think we covered a lot. Um, I don't know, Justin. I, I I I'd love to interview you. I'm 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 very impressed that uh, Madden America um, is doing this, and that 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 you're sort of recognizing how can we build uh, additional voices and get them out there. So I guess I feel. Um, that this is a form of democracy, right? This is a form of getting the word out there. Um, and I feel more celebratory than, than, than anything. So thank you so much for listening today. And as a reminder, if you'd like to support our work, please visit maddenamerica.com forward slash donate. And also, don't forget to send in questions for Madden America founder Robert Whittaker. Just email your question to askmia at maddenamerica.com. So thank you as always, and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. For more news, views, and updates, visit maddenamerica.com.